everyone to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. Um, we're happy to have with us today Heather Hauser, who's Associate Professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin. And she's going to be discussing her book, Infowhelm, Environmental Art and Literature in an Age of Data from Columbia University Press 2020. And of course, it's uh, great to be talking about something about data through the great technology that we have now uh, with data. And so we'll give it over to you, Heather. All right, well, thank you very much, Dolly and Finarna for inviting me um, to the Greenhouse Book Talks and also anyone else who's behind the scenes who helped make this possible. Um, this is a great series, I love how you know, inviting it is casual, but also it generates really um, significant conversation. So I welcome this chance to share a bit about Infowhelm, which did come out last June, June 2020, which is certainly a moment when information overload, one of the themes of the book, um, and really the pain and the violence that can represent was with us though it's also not really behind us at this moment. Um, and so I'm just going to give you a brief overview of the, of the book, some of the insights and, and a couple examples very briefly, and then welcome any questions um, from anyone in the virtual audience. Um, so of course we need data to tackle environmental crises, but we also know that data don't tell the whole story. Um, they can also, in the words of Catherine McKittrick, whose book Dear Science and Other Stories actually came out after my book was out, but it's sort of like retroactively very influential. Um, but she describes data as evacuating life from blackness and other forms of being. Data can drive exploitation and cultural indifference, but of course they're also essential. So how to sort of navigate that contradiction is something I was interested in the book and looked at artists who were also interested in. So in confronting the necessity yet potential injustices of data, environmental art turns it into an aesthetic resource. It's a phrase I use a lot in the book. That is the scientific information becomes the raw material for artistic expression and exploration. Um, and of course in our Zoom life, but certainly even before, we know that we see ourselves in, through, and even as data and all the complications around that. And certainly this idea of InfoWOM was meant to capture that. So it was meant to capture this information overload, sense of our lives and our environments being captured by data. But it also, that phrase is meant to encapsulate a cocktail of emotions um, that can include things like confusion, agitation, despair, and even what an author, Reef Larson, whom I write about in the book, um, called infogasm, so sort of the, the pleasures that overcome us in looking at data and especially data visualization. Um, so my interest in Infowhelm and its expression across media was really motivated by the deluge of data you find if you're just reading the news, if you are a researcher, if you're just someone concerned about environmental issues. So things like um, species extinction rates, greenhouse gas concentrations, um, risks of certain impacts in or health or otherwise in your area. But also I was interested in all of those emotions surrounding it and increasingly expressions of grief in environmentalism and climate science today. Um, and I look at grief in particular through, for example, Maya Lin's online memorial, What is Missing? 
which you can go to, I, I'm not showing slides today, but whatismissing.net um, and a number of other works. And all of these works, um, whether they're uh, confronting grief or other emotions, they aren't just humanizing the data, which is a phrase you'll hear a lot if you work with scientists, I think, talking about the role of the humanities. Um, really, the art of InfoWhelm is reproducing that experience of overload to offer ways to navigate that data experientially um, and also to situate information and the InfoWhelm in bodies, in histories, in different forms of mediation. Um, and so I work on con uh, very contemporary literature and media. Most of the items in the book are from the 21st century. And ours is not, though, of course, the first age of information overload, but I think there are some conditions today and complications that go beyond just the sheer amount of data that I capture in the book. Um, and that really became even more poignant during COVID or added another sort of layer to that. So those complications are that data are uncertain and evolving. They're contested by those in power, especially in the United States, though also in other contexts. And the stakes of taking action are enormous. So these attributes of InfoWhelm today, I think get their full contours through cultural works like literature, film, and visual culture. Um, and so encountering this, uh, this body of media, um, I really had these guiding questions for the project. So, most fundamentally, just how are the arts taking up environmental information? What happens when information enters that art? Um, and this was the way of thinking about how the arts generate knowledge in relationship to other forms of knowledge production um, and what theories of knowledge they might offer as companions to say the sciences. Um, and so this was really a way of insisting and thinking of art as an active mode of knowledge making. Um, that the arts aren't just documenting the experience of InfoWhelm, they're turning it into a resource for thinking through how we come to know the environment. Um, and especially what, what is the sort of authority, epistemological or otherwise, that the arts have in relation to, say, science, politics, economics. Um, so I'll say more about that, I think, in a second. But I did... Um, Terminology is important. I always encourage people, you know, to circle the keywords in a text and that's the way to know what it's about. Um, so for me, information um, refers to certainly quantitative data, statistics, for example, but also I think of it as the methods used to collect that data, to process it, and sort of the explanations and concepts that get, um, get developed in relationship to environmental um, data. So these questions, these understandings of information really arose as I was encountering contemporary fiction, films, visual culture, and just noted that abundance of information in that sense. Um, and so I thought just really briefly, I'd give you a quick taste, maybe just one example of something I encountered as I was working on the book. Um, and you can actually, I put a, a link in the chat and I could share an image, um, just one page of this poem. Now the book is mostly not poetry, but I'm choosing this because, you know, poetry is more consumable quickly. <laughs> um, but so Juliana Spar's work, 
um, and especially this poem, Unnamed Dragonfly Species. Um, it's from a volume called When There, When Well Then There Now from 2011. And her poetry for me runs as this light motif through the book. So I have three prefaces to the book and her poetry appears in each one of them. And what you're looking at here, if you've opened it, even if you haven't, I'll describe it for a moment. It's a prose poem and it's mostly capturing a collective speaker called they, who are encountering, they, they see um, videos of Cal Calvin glaciers on YouTube and sort of go into these rabbit holes of seeking out more and more information about climate crisis. And in the midst of this, there are these bold words that are interrupting this sort of account. And those bold words you learn in a note to the poem are referring to um, the New York State threatened species list. So, you're reading the, the, all of the emotions, the way that these people are confronting data, also denying it, ignoring it in relationship to all of just the daily struggles of their lives. And then you encounter these bold words of just the name of a, a common name of a species. So I was seeing in this, like this really dramatizes the stings of climate data when they're sort of encountered in an internet rabbit hole or just as you're you know, washing the dishes or whatever it might be. But this poem also strategizes ways of soothing or as I said, kind of numbing those stings. And it really thinks through this emotional intricacy of environmental information. Sort of that cocktail I mentioned earlier and that intimacy between information and experience, embodiment and feeling. And so, I mean, this is just one of many examples from the book, but it really was sort of a, one of the crystallizing, if not catalyzing examples for me um, that led to the book. Um, and of course, you don't just encounter this in like experimental poetry, um, you know, films like for Paul Schrader's First Reformed, many environmental documentaries, <laughs> and then a host of other visual culture I talk about in the book. And so as I was seeing this in all sorts of media, um, I really identified three main themes for what I, there are more, I'm sure, but like three main themes for me of its cultural expression. So one is climate data processing. So thinking of people as their own kind and communities as climate data processors, as in the ways that maybe, and how they encounter things like models and visualizations. Um, another section of the book is on the new natural history. So sort of the uptake of natural historical methods of display, collection, taxonomy um, in contemporary art and literature. And then also the final section is aerial environmentalism. So aerial and satellite data and perspectives across media. Um, and I can talk more about those, but we're doing like a quick take. <laughs> so that's just to give you a sense of the broad overview of the book. Um, but I did wanna just sort of end or move through some of, I think the, the key takeaways for me, you know, why I think this matters to think about. Um, so one is like maybe the most obvious, but just that, as I said earlier, information is the raw material for art today. It's not incidental. It's not really something we should just read or look over. We need to look at it. Um, and in looking at it, we see, I think, how artistic form and mediation are so crucial to knowledge production. So we come to know issues like climate change through formal conventions, um, like 
like horror, I talk about the use of horror techniques and even data visualization techniques like the aerial. And I think that the arts of the infowhelm go beyond this, like just the fact of mediation and um, formal and other forms of mediation to think about how to really reflect on all of the mediations of environmental, um, of information and how they shape environmental understanding. So when I'm looking at information, I'm also looking at the technologies, the processes, the histories of how that information comes to be. And through that, you think about mediation through power, through scientific values like objectivity, through emotion, which is you know, part of my background um, intellectually, through history, through technological history in particular and colonial histories, um, and also through social and identity positions. And I, you know, this is one of the ways I make a plug for the humanities that, you know, the humanities are one of the like most well-crafted um, toolkits for thinking about all of these forms of mediation. Um, and so another key takeaway though, for me from the book is that environmental values really form in through these forms of mediation, that they don't emerge in a vacuum and that they emerge through all of the mediations of power, form, you know, identity, emotion that I just referred to. Um, and so out of this, one of the other key words for the project is entangled epistemologies. So I think of the arts and especially what they're doing with information as really good at bringing together domains of knowledge that might be typically isolated by discipline, by tradition, by identity, even by language. Um, and so the arts are really good at reproducing, staging, or even challenging epistemologies that lurk behind environmental thought, even again, as like it's crucial to produce environmental knowledge. Many of the traditions that give us access to that knowledge have their roots in colonialism, in racism, in sexist practices. Um, and so in my usage, entangled epistemologies is really capturing how the arts integrate these varied ways of knowing through encounters with scientific information and how that's a way both to sort of bring knowledge to publics, but also challenge those histories of producing it. Um, and to think of values like uncertainty, self-reflexivity, speculation embodiment that might get, if not totally removed from other knowledge practices might be denigrated um, within them. Um, and so a, a key takeaway again for me in this project is that this kind of like um, investigation of knowledge itself is key to rethinking environmental relations so that we don't just repeat destructive practices of mastery and domination but really think like what the roots of our practices are and how to move into other practices. Um, and so in these aspects, sorry, in these aspects of the project, I'm really traveling with thinkers in indigenous environmental studies and black and feminist science studies who are like championing um, and practicing epistemologies rooted in speculation, storytelling, identity, and the sensing and feeling body. Um, and also traveling with them and showing how like positivist ways of knowing have helped instrumentalize and dominate nature 
and have suppressed and supplanted bodies of knowledge that need to be um, attuned to more broadly to think through environmental dilemmas. Um, and so if it's not located, or sorry, I, I skipped something here. Um, artists, I think, are powerfully reminding us of the ways that scientific knowledge doesn't come to us transparently, ahistorically, or objectively. Um, and while they're paying deference to science and what it can show us about things like extinction or climate crisis, the arts of the infrawhelm are really um, declaring that this knowledge is meaningless if it doesn't undergo, undergo this entanglement that rending, renders it meaningful. Um, and so, I mean, it, I want to, I guess, conclude maybe on a strange note, but just to say, my ideas in Infowhelm aren't really novel. Like I feel like many people have thought this through, but I feel I contribute by explaining how the presence of scientific information really catalyzes that entanglement I'm, I'm thinking about um, and how the information itself gets transmuted through that process. Um, and so the in histories of how information comes to be, of how it comes to be valorized, and of the perspectives it also includes is really um, comes through when information becomes the material for art. Um, and so I'm hoping the book offers approaches to information that I'm mentioning here and helps us think through the constructedness of all knowledge, but also thinks through those sort of collaborations across disciplines and media and, um, and forms of knowing that are crucial to, I think, uh, encounter any of the dilemmas we're facing today. Um, and I know I didn't talk about the specific authors or artists in the book because each chapter has probably like five or six, so it's a very long list, but I'd be happy to talk through some specific examples. Um, so thank you again for inviting me here and look forward to talking to you all. Thank you, Heather. You'll definitely get more chances to, uh, to also talk about the specifics here in the discussion. I mean, I, th I think this is really uh, fascinating. There's a lot that resonates with me here also in, in the kind of, of work that I'm doing and thinking about now on the, in a way, the way the relationship between, well, us and the world is always something that's mediated by and through different technologies and that none of these are neutral and you also have many uh, competing technologies too or, or forms of mediation. So I think it's also fascinating to hear about um, the role of art in this, which is something I haven't looked particularly much at. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can perhaps by using some of your examples, say a bit about uh, the relationship between art as mediator in storytelling and other forms. I mean, I'm particularly thinking, because uh, we see today, you know, there's more and more smart technologies. So we're gathering vast amounts of data that, I mean, in a way they, they come to represent the world. They uh, become ways forward in that we delegate to technologies, to algorithms, to act on them too. Uh, and none of these processes are neutral. Uh, sometimes they pretend to be, but they aren't. So, so have you come across particular examples where there's well conflict, uh, opposing interpretations, meetings between art and, for example, the technology industry or 
other fields. I'd be interested to hear about that. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of literature challenging these technologies. Um, I mean, at the same time as maybe delighting in them, but I, I not something I wrote about in the book, but I'm thinking of um, the novel a lot of people in the US are have been interested in called Severance um, by Ling Ma, which is a it's a sort of an apocalyptic scenario. A, a disease is, is running through um, across the globe and some people seem to be immune to it but what is <laughs> I think what's interesting about well one of the things that's interesting about the novel is like how technology is both it's almost a um a screen for what's us uh, a screen against what's happening because all of these routinized processes that we have that we are so you know sort of tied to checking our email getting on Zoom becomes like almost these robotic or zombie-like behaviors. Um, and so, and that that technology is almost like living on or doing its thing as people are dying, um, as people are getting sick. Um, this also showed up in Zone 1, I think by Colson Whitehead. Um, I mean, that's just, I think, maybe a more oblique way that people are thinking about how humans are kind of becoming zombified, right? As some of these automated processes take over, even think of like auto, you know, the, I don't know if you have, if you use Gmail, it tells you like what you could say in response. So sort of taking away that level of thought and reflection and reaction and just sort of automating all of it for us. That, I mean, we can maybe laugh at that, but then you think about, um, um, I think about um, Sophia Noble's work, um, Algorithms of Oppression, where she is thinking about all of the ways that these, the, the algorithms, these maybe routinized, pro routinized processes are built on um, forms of oppression, whether it's often it's racial and sexual and geographical and um, and linguistic biases, right? That, and then the way these get multiplied as, right? They just keep pro propagating. If you hear um, some plaintive noises, it's my cats wanting to get into this room. <laughs> um, but I do think that, yeah, this is a big concern as much as there can be, um, I, I think of, um, this is a little bit different, but um, there's this activist group called Sky Truth that I write about that uses aerial technologies, satellite technologies to really call out um, the damages of extraction and, and things like logging, illegal logging. But they're very self-reflective about those tools having been used in the service of extraction and logging. And, so a lot of people sort of navigating that contradiction of, you know, repurposing the tools that have brought on the very damage that they're trying to expose and, and you know, work against. Um, so that's, I think, another that like dual critical and that lens of like the critical as well as using the technology is something you see in a lot of these practices. Well, I was wondering about um, the species extinction, since that's what I, I work on right now. And uh, so that, you know, uh, was was really interesting to me to think about because I hadn't really put it into these info whelm, uh, you know, framework. But I when you go to natural history museums, they will often, in fact, have this 
wall now, a, a list of species names um, that you know can take up a huge wall. Um, and it is this kind of, well, what, what does one do with all these names, right? And so some of them um, you may recognize or visitor may recognize and many of them not because there's so many, right? So there's hundreds of these names that'll be on a standard list. Um, and so I was wondering how that kind of, yeah, overwhelming sense of, of listing things um, listing extinction functions, or is there a value in that? Or, or do, does an artist need to do something else with it, say a, a Maya Lin, um, in order to make it meaningful? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that was one of the things that interested me when I saw Juliana Spar's poetry of like performing that listing function, but in the midst of this other I mean it's a poem but it's a very narrative poem it's a prose poem and what's going transpiring is very narrative if not very plot driven um but you know sort of acknowledging that list function right that it's out there that we get um um and actually just recently another of these these lists came out right um the IUCN produces them like quarterly um, these databases that Ursula Heisa has written about as well, uh, that there's this trying to like acknowledge the function of that listing um, impulse and what that it's necessary to know all that has been lost or is, is um, in danger of being lost, but sort of thinking about how um, it needs to be situated in these other aspects of, one, of one's life, right? Because it's so easy to just visit the museum and then depart and write, what are you going to do with that information? And so what I think, what I was interested in is how that, if that information is put into these other contexts, I mean, granted this experimental poem is not one that billions of people have read, but then you have something like what is missing where I don't know about billions, but certainly a lot of people have explored that. And with Maya Lin, I was interested in how it has that collecting impulse, right? I mean, it's not a list. In fact, it's hard to get lists of anything in that because it's so dense and like um, so multimodal, but it, um, it has this collecting impulse. And so that is a naturalist impulse, listing, taxonomizing, classifying, collecting. These are all like in, uh, practices of natural history, but she is interested or that team is interested in like crowdsourcing, right? putting in these personal stories that might um, give dimension to just one of those names or one of those things in the list. And I have like some, you know, I'm, it's, I think that's a pretty amazing project. I think it also has, if not flaws, like um, maybe some effects that don't align with its purposes, but it is, I think, trying to interrupt that straight up listing overwhelming you with just the names and trying to find ways for people to um, recontextualize some of that information. Thank you. So uh, just a reminder to people, let us know in the chat if you have questions uh, for Heather. Uh, but while we wait for that, I was wondering if you have come across then examples of, um, I guess we can call it co-creation, you know, in these forms of, 
of artistic interpretation where i mean of course one would be here this is the artist's view you know you get that as an alternative representation or interpretation uh, or a story uh, of, of some particular kinds of information. But are there also examples where people, the, well, readers, viewers are invited in to, to create this in meaning uh, themselves? I mean, you were talking about this hierarchy in a way of like information, knowledge, meaning. Mm. How important is the viewer in, in this, you think? Yeah, that, um, well, I mentioned this already, so maybe I'll just continue to mention it. Um, this group Sky Truth, which again, they're like an activist group, they're not art artists. So that's another thing to say about the project is I will refer to things as art that maybe others will not because that is not the intention behind it. but. They do, um, I mentioned that they're using satellite imagery and there's often, um, there's a, an abundance of it to interpret and look at. And they, they hail, they engage um, sort of like citizen scientists or citizen interpreters of, um, of this, the satellite information. And they also do a lot of ground truthing. So say for example, there's an oil spill, which there are always many of them, and you have some satellite imagery that indicates that um, that exists, or actually another example, not just oil spills, was after Hurricane Harvey in the Gulf in Texas. Um, there were a lot of reports of um, leakages, of spills, of contamination from the petrochemical industry and oil refineries there. Um, and there was even some, you know, you could sort of detect it by aerial imagery. And yet, what was the experience on the ground? So they engaged people to basically tag some of the images, some of the locations um, with just like, what does it smell like? You know, what are you seeing? Um, what, what are you, what are you feeling? How is your body responding? Um, like I said, that's a more activist engagement, although the you know, sort of the things that result from these these projects might not look all that different from say an artist doing something similar of like story mapping or or taking um, some GPS or satellite imagery and, and ground truthing it or aligning it with stories from individuals on the ground. Um, so that's one way that I think um, at least in the visual, in the domain of visual culture, people are invited to engage. Um, and I didn't study this much, but, um, and I'm sure many in the audience will know um, Jennifer Gabers's work, um, Program Earth, where she also looks at like how apps and other, other forms of technology are being marshaled into these sorts of practices. So I do think that I'd say you see it less on the literary side, right? But um, I mean, that might be thematized in the work, but you don't get that kind of as much invitation. Now there might be like URLs, like a book will take you to a website or something, but a little bit less of that feedback loop that you might see in the visual culture. Well, so then I, I was thinking about this art, you know, category then um, and, and how you're expanding upon it. Um, and there is something though that sounds like it's, it is something aesthetic. So, so there is some aesthetics that are being used or manipulated or, or analyzed in this data um, 
that therefore makes it art. And I, so I can see that with this kind of a using uh, satellite photography, um, you know, there is an aesthetic quality of that. In fact, in the Welcome to the Anthropocene exhibit at the Deutsches Museum, they had a whole section that was satellite images, right? So it, it becomes this um, way of understanding the changes we've made on the planet. Um, so, but how do you do that in literature um, in the same aesthetic way? How, how does that function? I might ask you to, when you say, how do, how do I do it? Or how do artists? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, how do the artists do it? So, so okay. how do you, how do your examples? So in that, yeah. if you will, section where you're talking about um, this kind of satellite photography, is, is there also literature that does something aesthetic of that same type? Yeah. And then how, how do, I mean, is it purely that they write about the thing that one would see or are they doing something else with the literature? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I thought that's what you were meant, but I didn't know if it was a method like my method type question. So I wanted to clarify. Yeah, no, I was. Um, I think when I was envisioning this book along the way, I was like, well, there needs to be something about I actually thought I would write about the aerial and atlases and have a section on atlases, which didn't quite happen, although the essay I wrote for Environmental Humanities sort of like picked up on some of that stuff and turned it to other purposes. But um, so I was like, okay, well, this is definitely, as you said, like with that museum example, but I'd say it's everywhere, right? That the satellite image is one of the main ways, right? That in environmental and environmentalist perspectives are rendered um, at least for the past 50 years, um, but going back further too. Um, but with, so then I was like, well, yeah, what is the literary companion to this? Maybe this is a solely visual chapter, but I was noticing um, that actually there is um, this move to the aerial perspective within the literary arts as well. And so, was interested, I think I wrote about it in um, <laughs> New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson, um, and Animals People by Indra Sinha, and um, Gold Fame Citrus by Claire Bay Watkins, um, and probably some other texts I'm forgetting. I think I used Zone One to start that chapter, that there is this, um, and Kate Marshall writes about this in the context of Zone One and her thinking about the alien perspective, like, um, as being a perspective that writers employ to think about the Anthropocene. Um, but yeah, that there were, and that that technique, it's certainly a descriptive move. Like it's a moment of offering a description of a scene, for example. But I was interested in how in these authors, it was also doing other aesthetic work, like inhabiting other beings perspectives um, in line with what Kate Marshall was arguing. Um, but also a move of like moving between scales. So, um, oh, another work in which I discussed this is Strange Bird by Jeff Vandermeer. And there's also, um, the aerial often has a subterranean um, com companion. And so thinking about that, um, not just a zoom out, but what is happening in that move between the aerial and the subterranean. It's not just a simple zoom, like that there, 
they're trying to think of um, certain forms of like unpredictability, um, issues around scale, forms of being. Um, so yeah, that it's certainly operating in its own aesthetic way, but that it has its its own aesthetic um, um, attributes in fiction, the aerial, that is. All right, so we have a question from Eric. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. Um, yeah, it's right now, it's not. Yep. Yeah. Okay, uh, it's not letting me unmute or start the video. I don't know. No, no you're you're unmuted. Go ahead. Yeah, we don't have video. <laughs> okay, so, but don't worry about it. Okay. Um, hi, Heather. Thanks uh, for your for your talk. It's, I'm really excited to to hear you again. I, I just love your eco sickness book. But um, I guess what I wanted to ask you about is just a, a, a about the topic of of disinformation. So like my my sort of observation as American is that I'm still being working over here in, in Norway. So I'm just shocked by the way that um, the spread of disinformation seems to have gone mainstream in, in the Trump era. I mean, it always existed there and, you know, there was the role of intelligence agencies and things like that, but it's just, it's gone mainstream in the sense that it's not just Fox News and its allies, but a, a large number of, of um, uh, politicians participated in, you know, not just spreading incorrect information, misinformation, but actively spreading disinformation. So that's sort of my observation, and maybe I'm maybe I'm framing it in too much of an exaggerated way. That's, <laughs> I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. But then uh, related to that is just I'm wondering, in the course of your research um, in in both the literary arts, in particular, that's my most interest, but other arts that you're looking at, um, if you came across uh, any interesting writers or artists that you know, it enable us to better navigate <laughs> this kind of toxic media ecology filled with disinformation. Um, uh, you know, what sort of things would you teach uh, students if, when you're trying to introduce these topics and themes? You know, um, I, I come at it through all the, the, the sort of, um, you know, Pynchon and, and, and DeLillo and sort of the, all the conspiracy narratives and Joan Didion and writers like that. That's what I cut my teeth on. Um, but I'm wondering, um, younger artists and, and writers uh how, how it would be helpful you know if you're teaching a unit or something on disinformation well i would not say it's um i think you just that your first question was like is this exa an exaggerated perspective i would certainly not say that um <laughs> and i feel like in texas i live in one of the hearts of these efforts um and covid19 just really amplified it um, or gave it a new life, a new domain in which to operate. And, you know, one of the signals to me of this is um, listening to something like NPR, for example, I mostly listen to the radio, I don't have TV. And so I'm like, the num this never happened before recently where they would be um, telling a story, say about a politician or uh, usually it's a politician, um, denying some information, for example, about COVID-19 and having a very elaborate, like, this is false. You know, the, I feel like the effort would not necessarily be balanced, but the, the willingness to just say like, that is a lie. Like what we just played you was essentially a lie became a part of like the journalistic practice. They would not say lie, right? Cause it's more, I think, like a moral judgment, right? It would be like, this is false information. This is not 
this is actually, you know, how this vaccine works or something. So I don't think it's just, um, it's really has become very pervasive. And to me, one of the signs of that is these sort of journalistic checks. I mean, you see them on Facebook too, like this article is about COVID-19, please read it closely or whatever their caveats are. So we have entered this, obviously this different information landscape that people are trying to figure out how to contain as much as they're trying to disseminate, you know, the information and even the falsehoods. Um, so people are aware of them, but um, which I'm sighing because it's like exhausting, right? Like it's just so exhausting and we are, um, it's exhausting, but I do, I mean, your point about teaching, right? Like how we might think of ourselves as, you know, having some tools of interpretation and analysis, but how then do you train or just raise, you know, younger people to, to understand this landscape? And one of the things that I think is useful, um, I mean, the whole, like how social media propagates that and how to intervene in that is obviously it's a huge other issue that like Congress in the US and others are getting involved in. But really spending time with some of these objects like data visualizations, because um, it's so it's so easy to read over them or read past them or, you know, not bring um, the kinds of literacy or interpretation that we might bring to a, a another kind of text to that sort of data objects, whatever they happen to be. And so sort of like spending time and that's what I think a lot of the data artists are doing like there's some there's aesthetic play there there's technological play and innovation and experiment but I do think that a number of data artists are also just offering um offering uh encouraging us to slow down and pay attention to these data objects and whether it's something, so I, in the book, but also in teaching, will spend time with like climate model visualizations, right? To, to think about, they are complex. I mean, right, they're like, even though they are the most accessible version of say a climate data um, or a climate model um, scenario projections, they're that in themselves, they're very complex. So like paying attention to the, um, the figure labels, right? Like, what does that even mean? How does it relate to the, the text itself? Often those are, are decoupled. So, right, you'll find like a, a visualization on Twitter and you don't know where it actually came from or, or even in journalistic reports, it can be hard to track back like where that thing came from. So I think in a teaching context, um, this is not going to solve disinformation in the United States. I'm not trying to claim that but just like pausing with these objects and um, bringing to bear the tools that probably most or all of us in this, on this call have brought to say painting or photography or film or literature that like all of that also needs to be brought to bear here. But um, it admittedly can be even harder because of the ways like these things detach from their original context. Um, so, I mean, admittedly, I didn't spend a ton of time on disinformation, probably because of my own sense of overwhelm in writing in, um, in when I wrote this book. But um, there's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's an explosive thing in the U.S. that I, 
I don't see diminishing just because we have a different president, right? It's like its own force. It might not be in the White House as much as it used to be, but it's sort of everywhere else still. Um, so an extension of Eric's question, I mean, because this also has to do with control over data, right? Control over who, I mean, who has access, who gets to present things in particular ways. Uh, so a big theme, there would be ownership of data. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you have some examples then of uh, thinking about this, it's not just ownership of the data, but it's also uh, ownership of the infrastructures through which this data is stored and made available. Uh, and you do have a, like pretty large political activist movement that works to, in a way, free data, uh, make sure it's available. And I think they have a fair amount of overlap with like libertarian movements also. But do you see engagements with environmental artists and activists and attempts to involve free data to make other forms of infrastructure and so on? Yeah, I'm thinking, um... And this was something that emerged out of the Trump administration's um, really destruction of data and information. Um, is it, I'm now forgetting the name of it. Is it data rescue? If someone knows, um, I know like- Data refuge, that, I think. Yeah. Refuge, yeah. yeah. Um, that project to try at, as especially the Trump administration was was stripping climate information from government websites like the EPA. I mean, the people who were um, national climate assessment, you know, the people who groups that were responsible for, for tracking this information at some point, like was actually being stripped away, just marshalling like as uh, again, like a, a community of people really crowdsourcing, trying to capture this information before it was, was just totally unavailable. Um, and, you know, just because we have a different administration doesn't mean that effort isn't isn't still um, really important just because of the, you know, political ephemerality, right? The changes of in the political cycles, but also just because, you know, websites change, right? It's just, it's sometimes it's not even as nefarious. So I see that effort, um, which I wonder what kind of art might come of that because I don't know of anything, but it seems like its own, you know, corpus or its own like raw material for some project that might emerge out of that. Um, on, and I think you mentioned infrastructure. Well, I, I think of, um, well, now I've mentioned them a million times. So I'm like, maybe I should try to think of someone else, but um Satellite data is a good, I think is a good example of this because the, a lot of the satellite imagery emerges from um, government and corporate partnerships, right? These are often private public collaborations, but increasingly privatized because that infrastructure is quite expensive. And if people, you know, if you have a, a, a private entity that wants to, you know, go out and develop the nicest, the best satellites, send them out, collect the data. Great, right? Except that some of that won't be available. And you find that, um, you find that um, another artist I, I write about, um, Laura Kurgan, who has a project called Monochrome Landscapes, where she basically, she 
she does, she sought out data, um, satellite imagery of um, places on the globe that would be monochrome. So something like a desert, an ocean, um, the Arctic, an expanse of snow, a forest that's um, largely or primarily green because of the, the cover. And she found, you know, that, for example, in she was looking for images of Iraq, some of that was no longer available because it had become classified due to military uses of that information. Um, but then by, by circumstance, the image that she could get did include like a helicopter moving through that. that. So, so even sometimes the, I think there are artists who are sort of like, um, it's not random, right? They're not like randomly choosing some of this imagery, but just finding some of the unexpected, what, what is revealed that maybe was meant to be hidden or what is unexpected that can come through even when it is um, that data is being privatized or contained. Like what are some of the leakages, I guess that, so that's one um, artist I think of who's, trying to expose that infrastructure and what gets hidden within it, but what can sort of leak through or be exposed within it as well. Um, and yeah, a lot of just like, I think a lot of interest in open source data and trying to encourage, you know, even climate scientists to share more of their data, share some of the model code, you know, it's like there are these competitions not only between like military and civilian or artist purposes of data, but just because of like the careers of a scientist, right? That can keep some of this data under wraps that would be very beneficial to, um, to you know, um, certainly artists, but also like other people wanting to, um, to build their own models who maybe don't have the same resources. Um, I was on a letter, I guess I signed a letter as um, chair of Planet Texas 2050, a climate research program um, at UT Austin, where we were um, encouraging people to make that kind of data available. Well, I want to come back to something that you mentioned in your um, opening discussion, and that was about emotions. So you mentioned um, grief <laughs> as a particularly um strong emotion that one can use this kind of info whelm to to talk about grief um but i was wondering about other types of emotions so do you find that people can use this prolifera of data to make people angry um for example <laughs> or you know have, have something other than than grief and well being overwhelmed and of itself is an emotion right um, but so are they using this in, in other ways? Yeah, I, um, I'm trying to think anger in particular. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I wrote about was, and it's kind of simple, basic, but the use of color um, and that, you know, the red, red is danger, right? The, the, um, the sense that red provokes urgency, that it provokes a sense of danger, of threat, but it's also an emotion of a uh, color of anger in many cultures. I mean, it means a lot of other things too, but like in that context, um, 
that it is associated with anger, um, as well as all of these other things. So even if it's not so deliberate, sort of that reliance on the, say, the white or blue to red spectrum is, I think, thinking about those, those emotions that get provoked. I work with, um, I've worked with someone at UT, she's an artist who also works on, she sort of consults on visualization um, with like Los Alamos and other labs. Um, her name's Francesca Samsel, and she has um, worked with climate scientists on other color schemes and sort of theorized those color schemes from an artist's perspective, working with scientists on their visualizations, because it's like, is that the emotion you want to provoke? Or is that, um, maybe it is, but if it isn't, you know, just thinking that about the entailments of some of those choices. So that's a cool like art science collaboration. Um, but also I think, um, I mean, I read The Guardian a lot and I feel like, uh, like tonally, a lot of their reporting is geared toward anger. Um, and I think even some of the visualization, again, I'm, I'm straying from the arts in this, in this response, but like that between um, even just the layout, you know, you'll have something like the font, sort of like a yelling headline, like a headline that like yells at you the way it's presented. And then the way that the visualizations might like accumulate, I mean, who, who's to say, and I got this response all the time when I wrote about for eco sickness, but like, who's to say how an individual will respond, right? That re re requires certain other kinds of studies, um, reader or other response studies, but um, that they're clearly thinking about that, like accumulation, escalation, um, provoking perhaps a sense of being overwhelmed, but also anger and wanting to provoke some action. Um, on another side of the like emotional spectrum, maybe um, I just taught Jenny Offel's book, Weather, in my graduate seminar. And there, I mean, it's sort of like um, anxiety is something that gets, um, that book is sort of like reproducing and thinking through. Um, and there are moments of anger, <laughs> often like of the micro angers of everyday life, but they're sort of like activated or intensified by all of this that's happening, you know, in our in our data and climate surroundings. Um, but yeah, so I think, and I see this comment about apocalyptic language, like um, urgency, overwhelm, despair, and there have been plenty of studies about like how the doomsday scenario does lead to a deadening response, right? And maybe inactive response, but how something like anger <laughs> might, um, might be more activating for certain people. So just as a final question then, I mean, also following up on this and thinking about the lessons, I guess, from your book. So if we think about environmental humanities as a field, uh, I think one of the major challenges that's facing, I mean, not just environmental humanities, but in particularly us, I would say, is how do we deal then with this info well, this, this massive amount of data, of information, of knowledge uh, out there? Uh, do you have any lessons, advice, uh, ways forward to point to? Yeah, well, um, 
I think I don't want to say we'll just rely on the artist because that's not fair <laughs> exactly. But one of the um, well, I'll say like personally, um, something I developed more as I was working on this book was actually to turn it off a lot more than I did prior to working on this is um, that I mean, I have. I think I had a moment in my life where it was like the more I could consume, the better positioned I would be for X, Y, or Z, like fill in the blank. I'm not always sure what I thought I would be better positioned for, um, but that now I like self curate as oh, to use a word we all love these days. Um, what information I, I don't actually like go to Twitter all the time. I don't have notifications on my phone. I choose like a few new, new sources and go to them. This is not something, I mean, I didn't, that's not something like my book methods or insights uh, leads to. It's just something that I did more and more as I was working on this kind of out of a recognition of just that more is not better, I guess. Um, but that more, more might be better in the sense of the ways that it can be taken up in so many different contexts. So like, not that one individual should try to consume more and more and more, but to recognize that the greater availability, the greater accessibility means that more and more people can take it up, right, and do something with it that might, you know, lead to all these things I'm writing about. Um, that if it isn't so owned by one group or the infrastructure isn't so owned by one group, what sort of possibilities does that, that open up for like repurposing or challenging or using these technologies um, and data to different ends? So I think that was, um, yeah, not more is better in that individual consumption side, but like thinking about it on a collective, from a collective perspective, you know, what can emerge from that availability. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Um, Heather Hauser with her book, Infowhelm, Environmental Art and Literature in an Age of Data uh, with Columbia University Press yeah. from 2020. There it is. I had it happen to have it on my desk so I can even show it. <laughs> um, thank, thank you very much for inviting me into for having this series of talks. It's really, really great. Thanks.